think I've mentioned this before, but I don't watch a lot of Japanese wrestling because it's too good. It's the first time you broke my heart. (laughs) Japanese wrestling is like heroin because like I know it's the best shit in the world and I don't need that in my life. Like I don't need to ruin my career and and relationships by being strung out on my couch all day on my 18th hour of Dragon Gate. See, I thought you didn't watch because you were intimidated by how to say their names. (laughs) Also, mostly that. Jake just uh, pulled over the cover for the bullshit that Nick just said. Yes, just so you know, this is going to be 90 minutes of Nick Alexander butchering the entire Japanese culture. I apologize up front. I don't know how to say words. Also, he tried really hard for this episode, so it's going to be even funnier when he fucks up. (laughs) I did a lot of... It's okay, just... Just say it with confidence, much like everybody said Yakuza for years, and then turns out it's the Yakuza. Uh, like <laughs> I told Nick to say every syllable with dignity, and I think that's that's pretty good. We'll see. We'll mm-hmm. see with how we go. Dignity, yeah. confidence. <laughs> well, welcome to Ten Bell Pod, where we discuss the life and death of professional wrestlers. I'm Hollywood Nick Alexander, all the way from Los Angeles, California, and all you listeners can stick it, brother. To- uh, <laughs> I'm joined today, all the way, in the Manning Cave, in the podunk town of Charlotte. Am I saying that right? Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm joined by Micah J. Loving. I think you mispronounced it. It's called Go Fuck Yourself, Nick, you piece of shit. <laughs> and I am also joined by the man scout of a thousand badges, Jake Manning. <laughs> That's right. Uh, residing in Charlotte, North Carolina, next to the shithole known as Monroe, North Carolina. Oh, uh, no. F- how Nick dare you? Was born. <laughs> uh, uh, fuck you. <laughs> Today we're covering a guy who is a mix between Ricochet and a Mortal Kombat character. (laughs) He (laughs) he was the innovator of some of the coolest moves in pro wrestling. He has one of the best masks of all time. He was the great and mighty Hayabusa. So uh, a big chunk of our research is from Hayabusa's RF shoot, which is on the High Spots Network, who do not sponsor us, Jake. He speaks through a translator the entire time, but without even saying a word of English, I'm like, seems like a cool dude. <laughs> yeah, totally. He comes off great. He's, he's laughing. He's having fun. He's just like, hey, this is, this is fun times. Before we get into Hayabusa's story, how would you describe him to someone who's never heard of Hayabusa? I think he was like a rock star. Like he was what people saw the Rock and Roll Express to be in like the 1980s this crossbreed of like fantastic wrestler innovative maneuvers high-flying maneuvers but at the same time too knowing that once they step outside of the ring and into real life they were a rock star and i I think that's kind of the aura and the essence of hayabusa especially when you look later in his career and he had just this amazing theme song as well just rock and roll all, all the way and an innovator and probably will never get his due and it's just very surprising that time is gonna unfortunately kind of forget because it was just such a small blip of greatness that was just unbelievable and undeniable hayabusa was just he was tape trading porn you had to get the two hour tape because that was you would get the sp mode so you got the best quality so you would get that best of hayabusa when you got that it was it was the equivalent to actual porn it's like oh man i'm gonna cradle this 
this is going to be the best thing. And then you would see all these fucking high impact moves and dives and your jaw would drop. Aya Giyazaki was born November 29th, 1968 in Kumoto, Japan. On the same day, also three people were born. D. Brown, NBA slam dunk champion. Oh, nice. Saw him do it live at the Charlotte Coliseum. Also, Jonathan Knight of the New Kids on the Block. Okay. And Pedro Martinez, three-time Cy Young winner and ass kicker of Don Zimmer. All born on the same day. IAG came from a working class family with his father supporting him, his mom, and his brother on a taxi driver's salary. And you know how hard that can be with Uber and Lyft taking their cuts. However, Azaki's grandparents had money and owned an old traditional Japanese style hotel. So the family packed up and moved to live and work at the hotel in 77 when IAG was just eight years old. It was at his grandparents' hotel that he started watching professional wrestling with his grandfather. And his grandfather would actually take him to some All Japan shows. And Growing up, he liked guys like the Funks and Bruiser Brody. But two of his favorite wrestlers wore masks as he looked up to Mil Mascaris and the Great Tiger Mask. While attending Komoto Gaiken University, he saw that a smaller, more indie wrestling company Sayadaya Wrestling Association was looking for students, so he applied. They accepted three students that semester, Kingo Matsuda, Masashi Honda, and Ayaji Azaki. They were trained by Takashi Ishikawa, who was a former sumo wrestler turned pro wrestler who spent the bulk of his career in all Japan. November 2nd, 1987 in Komoto, Ayaji would work his first ever match, teaming up with his pal Masashi Honda, taking on some upperclassmen from their training camp. And apparently this match was a dumpster fire. It was all the young boys just doing moves at each other instead of having a cohesive match. But I could not find this anywhere. Jake, do they regularly have matches that are kind of like the new kids? Uh, just kind of, I would guess this was a dark match somewhere that they wouldn't even film. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. When you're a young boy in Japan, you're taught a very short list of moves because it's more about perfecting the moves and doing them over and over and over and over and over and over again and perfecting the actual technique of professional wrestling. That's why uh, Japanese wrestlers are so technically proficient. And when they start branching off into the bigger and more spectacular moves, the, those basic bumps, those basic movements are ingrained in them. The, the point of like, you could come up to me like, hey, my finishing maneuver is a burning, flipping yakuza. And they're like... <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, what do I need to do? And they're like, take a face bump. Got it. And they're going to take it perfectly and safely and, and make it look devastating every time because of all the practice tasting, taking face bumps or whatever or however. So, you know, you'll get a lot of the young, young boys, and if it's a situation like, hey, this is just a house show, there's not a taping, it's like, yeah, you guys set up the ring, you guys are the first match, go out there, you got 10 minutes, do your stuff. And you just need to go out there and have them fail for a while so you can yell at them in the back and then hopefully do better next time. And that's done not just in Japan, but everywhere else in the world today. George South does that with his students even today. So around 1990, Azaki and his pal Masashi Honda would try out for a new Japanese wrestling company called Frontier Martial Arts. There they'd receive further training from Tarzan Gotu, who was another all-Japan guy who also did some U.S. work in Jim Crockett in Memphis. Tarzan Goto, he and Onita basically put FMW on the map. And one of the things that they did, it started off, the FMW that is, it started off as a shoot fighting promotion because Onita was this cruiserweight in uh, all-Japan. And he held their junior title 
and he was kind of a high flyer because that's what you did as a junior. You kind of flew around and he did some spectacular moves. Well, Onita hurt his knee, and so he couldn't do some of the more spectacular stuff that he was used to, and he was kind of small, so he couldn't wrestle as a heavyweight. He couldn't wrestle as a junior anymore, but he still wanted to be in wrestling some way, somehow. So he had to, like, manipulate what professional wrestling was for it to fit his skill set and it started off as like a shoot fighting promotion and it ran a couple of shows under this shoot fighting premise very similar to uwf which had that uh, interpromotional feud with new japan yeah. with takata and um akira Hameda and on all of those guys and of course the you know, success of fmw being a shoot fighting promotion didn't last long but with someone like tarzan goto who traveled america much like onita and you know remembered like those crazy matches that terry funk would have or those memphis brawls and the reaction that would get from the crowd you know anita's like well like i can't wrestle the heavyweights because i'm too small i can't do the junior stuff anymore nobody's interested in the shoot fighting aspect of it why don't i do this hardcore weapons type matches barbed wire explosions so, so he took a lot of that american memphis and amarillo territory and just those texas death match style matches and then brought it to japan and him and tarzan goto and you know who had experience and exposure to that when he toured the states brought it over to japan and brought hardcore wrestling over there and that's basically what fmw was known for much in the same sense that what ecw did in you know taking some of that memphis hardcore texas amarillo terry funk badass just ass kicking weapons barbed wire blood guts chairs tables all of that and bringing it to prominence and making that the feature point of your promotion so basically when you think about fmw it's basically like the ecw of japan while training at fmw they got into some of that brutal japanese training that you always hear about students lived at the fmw dojo however iag and honda were assigned to a five-person room that only had four beds so izaki and honda had to take turns sleeping in the hallway their schedule was roughly this they would wake up at 6 a.m to work out then eat breakfast but since they weren't paid working wrestlers yet, they had to get jobs. Working for FMW's sponsor, the French Bed Company, from 8 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. selling beds. Imagine being that sleep-deprived and working in a mattress store. Then they would drive back to the dojo, where training started at 6 p.m. After doing 500 to 1,000 Hindu squats, 300 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, they'd get into the actual wrestling training until 11 p.m. Then they would eat dinner, clean the dojo until 2 a.m., and have four hours to sleep. On top of that, they'd help set up the ring and work odd jobs at FMW shows. They had to do all this six days a week, with Sunday being their only day off. Ugh. May 5th, 1991, IAG would make his FMW debut, being told just two hours before the show started that he was doing so, and he didn't even have wrestling tights with him. After borrowing some, he teamed up with Amiga Ultra, getting a win over Yukahiri Wino and El Pantita. <laughs> or you could just say that he got his FMW debut tagging with Amiga Ultra in a tag team match. No, no, no. Nick wants to go for it because he's an ambitious dude who wants to conquer the world. Okay. All right. Go for, go for it. <laughs> I'm giving I'm giving you a verbal out. When you selected that Hayabusa, oh. I, I knew we were going to have this issue. 
This was Azaki wrestling under his real name with no mask. And to speak on something Jake said a little earlier, this match got Azaki into a lot of trouble because during this match, he did some drop kicks as well as that sweet ass spinning hill kick he did. Yeah. This got him in trouble because he was supposed to stick to the basic wrestling moves. From this match, he would make his first ever amount of money from pro wrestling, getting 5,000 yen cash money, son, which is about $50 American. That's pretty good for a first pay, right? Oh, yeah, 50 bucks uh, during this time, for sure. And I don't know what the Japanese economy was at the time. Uh, That might have been, like, really good. And I remember reading something somewhere that uh, his training partner, Honda, who's his best friend all the way from the early days, he hadn't had his debut with FMW, and he got very jealous. The The article where I got it, we discussed earlier before we got on mic, like, the validity of it. But, like, I could believe that because, you know, when you have a training partner, somebody you start wrestling school with, and some of you come up together, you know, not everybody develops at the same time. So seeing your friend get an opportunity to wrestle on the show and getting money, and then you put on top of it, you're sleep deprived, you're working, you're probably not getting paid a whole heck of a lot. And then this guy gets $50 and an opportunity to wrestle while well, you don't. And then you're like, what's wrong with me? Am I a piece of shit? <laughs> like, it, so it's, it's this weird dynamic that kind of starts with these two, even at this early age. Izaki would spend the rest of 1991 learning and working matches on the undercard. He'd get to work with people like Sabu, Louis Spicoli, The Sheik, Masada Tanaka, and a very young Chris Jericho. He would talk about how in the beginning of his career, like he was on the second anniversary FMW show, the third, the fourth, and he was always the first match. He was always the first match guy, and his goal at the time was simply to be in the second match. Well, and it's funny is, I think you mentioned earlier about tape trading at the top of this this program. Part of the reason that you know tape trading existed, especially for FMW matches, because Sabu would take a camcorder over there and record his matches. <laughs> And then people would want a copy of it. And so they're like, here's, here's a copy of Sabu in Japan. And because Sabu ended up wrestling, e.g., like there's a lot of matches of an unmasked Hayabusa wrestling Sabu. Very early matches. And they're all like a hard camera angle. And Sabu's just recording it just for the sake of being a better wrestler, watching himself back. What do I need to work on? What look good? What doesn't look good? You know, how to how to make this look better. So, you know, when Sabu would give that tape off to somebody, that guy would trade it with somebody else or sell it or, or do whatever. So even before Hayabusa had the mask on, people were aware of who he was just because he was this skinny guy wrestling Sabu and best of Sabu in Japan, whatever it would be labeled. Hell yeah. It was around this time that Azaki would head to Mexico, and here he'd learn the Lucha Libre style from Rey Mysterio Sr. while working for World Wrestling Association, AAA, and CMLL. Since he didn't have much of a name in Japan yet, Mexico treated him like a rookie, so he basically had to go back to pro wrestling school and start completely over. And I'm sure working for two years in Japan, that must have really sucked. But this gave him an entirely new foundation and set of skills to take back home. And the weird thing, uh, when he was training, he had to train with a lot of kids because in Mexico, luchadors were so revered and 
it was such a huge deal that tons of kids were training. So he had to train with children to get his Lucha Libre initial experience. Well, and also to this during the time that there was a real initiative done in, in the early 90s, um, kind of this undercurrent. A lot of the business was failing as far as like WWF and WCW. A lot of those businesses were kind of failing and on a downward swing. But as far as an art form, something was happening in Japan and Mexico and even Stampede Wrestling, you would have, you know, Canadian wrestlers, even LA-based wrestlers, they would go over to Japan or they would go to Mexico and there'd be kind of this talent exchange for these younger wrestlers to gain experience in, you know, the Japanese style or the Lucha Libre style. And it was kind of this thing that you had these guys that are like, oh, I'll do a little bit of time in Mexico. Or I'll do a little time in Japan, I'll do a little time in Stampede or Puerto Rico, or it was kind of like this this weird thing of happening, like these promotions were working together. Like I said, Stampede had a good relationship with New Japan, and then the Bulldogs jump, and then they had a good relationship with All Japan, and then of course New Japan would be sending guys to Mexico all the time because they wanted some of their juniors to get better and be more unique, where All Japan was more focused on like the guy jeans and, and Americans. Were, so New Japan was like, how can we be different? Well, let's make our super juniors better. Well, how can we make them better? Well, let's get them trained in the Lucha Libre style. Or like, how can we have some of our guys be more proficient in a style that's a bit more contemporary? Well, let's send them over to America. So there's this kind of this exchange going on. Like you, you saw it a lot with Liger and, and a lot of other guys like Owen Hart was in, a, in the mix of that. Like you see earlier footage of the Blue Blazer in Mexico. So there's these guys just bouncing around and moving around all over the place and gaining experience and learning all these different styles and making this hybrid of wrestling, which is now popular today and just now seeping up to the surface and making its way to Monday Night Raw just now. (laughs) And it all kind of started here with guys like Liger and Hayabusa, like these, these Japanese stars going to Mexico to learn Lucha Libre style. And then doing little tours in Mexico and also little tours in in California to kind of learn more of an American style and just kind of figure out what these different crowds and these different audiences want. Because if you can figure out what works here and then find something that works in all those places, uh, you'll achieve great success on a much larger scale. It was the influence of Lucha Libre that prompted Izaki to start wearing a wrestling mask. He actually planned to only wear it in Mexico. However, pieces started to fall in place, and soon all these pieces would come together to form the character that would make Azaki a pro wrestling legend, Hayabusa. Hayabusa in English means peregrine falcon, and you can see a little falcon emblem on a lot of his masks throughout his career. And Hayabusa might be known by our listeners for the first time ever from their Nintendo 64, which he... You couldn't do him on the American versions, the virtual pro wrestling, but WCW NWO World Tour, you knew him as Hannibal. WCW NWO Revenge was Hanzo Man, and WCW versus the World, he was Habanero. <laughs> Thinking back on it, you remember his moves, the tornado kick, all that stuff. It was like, oh, fuck, I'm Hayabusa. Awesome. He returned to Japan April 4th to participate in the 94's New Japan Super J Cup tournament where he would compete as Hayabusa for the first time on Japanese soil. In the first round of this tournament, he'd take on a man that Jake Manning has spent 2019 feuding with, Jushin Thunder Liger. The Super J Cup 94 and 95 is a culmination of these younger wrestlers that have traveled the world and collected knowledge from mexico the american style like i said in calgary or california or going to puerto rico and all these guys 
just accumulating as much knowledge as possible, even like some tours in in the UK and Europe, like some of the tournament round styles that they, they met in Austria and Germany. Like it's just a culmination of all these guys finally collecting all that data and connection and then bumping into these guys in different locales and location. And basically the Super J 1994 is a culmination of that and 95 as well. And Hayabusa to be a part of it, it just fits perfectly. And for some, for him to wrestle something like Jushin Liger, who is probably more established at the time, Liger even just goes out of his way to really make Hayabusa yep. because this is Hayabusa's Japanese debut. And as you've learned from the bonus content from our Patreon page, when I talk about Liger, Liger is all about making people because he loves professional wrestling. That image at the beginning of the match when Hayabusa knocks Liger out of the ring, he still has his fucking robe on, and he does the Tope Con Hilo that absolutely fucking flattens Liger. Just that image, I don't know, man, there's something about that that is just picture perfect. I think I'll say this for every Hayabusa match, but what a good, fun match to watch. Liger wins with a brain buster that's not even through a tent. How did he even pin him then? (laughs) Three days later, after the Liger match, Hayabusa hopped on a plane right back to Mexico, where he would spend a lot of time tag-teaming with fellow Japanese wrestler Ultimo Dragon. I could not find any of these matches, and it breaks my heart, because I want to see it so bad. And the Super J-Cup match was so big for Hayabusa. You might remember Victor Kionis, who showed up in our Bruiser Brody episode. He was doing IWA Japan at the time, and he offered Hayabusa a $10,000 signing bonus and $3,000 a month based on that one match alone. He was going to be the star of IWA Japan, but Hayabusa already felt the commitment and the loyalty to FMW, and he turned it down. And you'll see that throughout his career. No matter who or what is offered to him, Hayabusa is FMW for life. For life. Hayabusa would stay in Mexico until December of 94. And then between January 95 and April 95, Hayabusa actually wrestled in the United States, mostly in Florida. And during this time, the WWF actually reached out to him for a tryout, but he also declined this offer because, again, FMW for life. Hayabusa turned it down. Jinsei Shinzaki, who we'll talk about more later, who most people probably know as Hakushi, filled that role in WWF. In May of 95, Hayabusa would be back in FMW to begin the run that would make him a legend. And how's this for a welcome back match? For FMW's 6th anniversary show, May 5th, 1995, he was chosen to be Onita's opponent for his retirement match, which was for the Brass Knuckles Heavyweight Championship in a exploding cage barbed wire death match, where if you don't win in 10 minutes, the entire cage will explode. Hey, Hayabusa, you ever been in a barbed wire cage explosion death, your limbs will explode everywhere match? No, I've never done that. You want to do it in front of 58,000 people for the first time? Yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, the original opponent was supposed to be Tarzan Goto, and he's just like, yeah, I'm not putting over an either. <laughs> I'm sick of it. I've been doing that for six years, at least in FMW, probably even longer everywhere else. I'm not doing it. And he walked out. <laughs> and so then they were scrambling, like, who are we going to put in this? And putting Hayabusa in this match kind of ascends him to the main event status of, of FMW. No one wins in 10 minutes. So the entire cage does explode, giving everyone in the arena mesothelioma and murdering the original ref. After the explosion, Hayabusa <laughs> so kicked out of Onita's thunder fire powerbomb. And apparently that was super huge for him. 
Onita won the match, and Hayabusa had to get 67 stitches after, but this really pushed Hayabusa into the forefront of FMW. Especially because he actually goes up on top of the barbed wire cage, attempts a fucking moonsault off of it, <laughs> miss it, but uh, the good thing is it's after the bomb, so all that uh, mesothelioma dust flies everywhere and infects millions of more people. And I have to say, of all the Onita retirement matches... <laughs> This, ha- <laughs> yeah, yeah. this has to be the best one. <laughs> I feel like this is the best one of all. It's pretty great. Even like the teases they do to almost throw him into the cage or the fact that the ref wears like a hazmat fire protected bomb squad suit. It's all combined to make this uh, scene that much worth it. With Onita retired, the weight of the company would soon be placed on the shoulders of Hayabusa and he would return as a main eventer on May 17th. From here, he'd feud with various Lethal Weapon stable members. He'd debut his Phoenix Splash, which is one of the coolest moves in pro wrestling history. I mean, it was a really big fucking deal. Pro Wrestling Weekly even did a full two-page spread on the Phoenix Splash, breaking it down frame by frame, because if you just watch that live and you're not expecting it, it's one of those things where you're like, what the fuck just happened? You really don't know if you try to describe it. He's like, I don't know. He twirled a lot and everything was blurry and I marked out. But they broke it down page by page based on that and just Hayabusa's general high-flying ability. Uh, business increased from May to June by 30% and even got a mainstream news broadcast just about the fucking Phoenix Splash. Just a move. Got mainstream news broadcast in Japan. When I talk about moves that are like ridiculous in a joking manner, <laughs> you know, like if you want to make a joke to somebody like, uh, hey, what's your finish? Or somebody comes in like, hey, what do you want to do for a finish? I'll say Phoenix Splash. Like, because I, I just, I, it's to me, like, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. And it's so funny to me. Be like, hey, Ricky Morton, you can do the Phoenix Splash tonight? You know, just it's just weird stuff like that. Like, anytime I want a, a move that is just absolutely absurd Phoenix and ridiculous splash. and just say it, I just say Phoenix Splash. <laughs> Just a month after his re-debut, Hayabusa would win a tournament for the vacant Brass Knuckles Heavyweight Championship, debuting his new finisher, the Falcon Arrow, which is also a really cool uh, pile driver. It's a slam. I mean, it's not it's a pile driver. It's, it's a suplex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you turn and... He would immediately vacate the title due to a real injury, but storyline-wise, they said he gave it up because he wanted to focus on FMW's feud with Wing. It's weird because, like, you had IWA Japan, you had Wing and FMW, and they were all kind of fighting over the same space in the Japanese market. Like, they're all fighting over that hardcore wrestling audience. It'd be like three ECWs existing, <laughs> which kind of like ended up happening after ECW fell is that you had Ring of Honor, which was the, the people that watched ECW for like the Luchadors, the Malenkos, and the Eddie Guerreros. And then you had CZW for the people who watched ECW for all of the chair swinging freaks and tables and flaming tables and all of all of those things. And imagine having a third aspect of it all fighting for that that same niche but that's kind of what wing was doing they were they were fighting for like that hardcore audience but of course you already had iwa japan and you already had fmw and in my opinion fmw was probably doing it bigger and better than everybody else probably because they had better sponsors so they had hayabusa to be really quite honest 
Hayabusa would finish up the rest of 95 and roll into January of 96, feuding with Wing and Lethal Weapon members in various tag team matches, street fights, and death matches. By 96, he was pretty beat up from all the brutal matches and their brutal schedule. FMW didn't really do TV and pay-per-views at the time, but they did tours year-round, working easily 120 house shows a year, so he took time off to deal with multiple injuries. Those were left knee inside collateral ligament damage, right shoulder joint sprain, abnormally elevated level of phosphate in the blood. I meant to look that up. What is that, Jake? Do you know what that means? Okay. Um... Left ernal bone nerve palsy. That sounds the fucking worst. Right knee sprain, finger joint pain, left eye iritis. I thought the dude fucked up when he was typing it, but that's a real thing. Look it up. Rib bone fracture. I think his left big toe was fucked up. A ruptured tricep and traumatic glaucoma, which I thought only my grandmother got. <laughs> and what's funny is you look at some of those matches and you'll see as we're going through in the future, but it's a good time to talk about because all the injuries you look back at some of the stuff they used to do to him. They used to just like murder him uh-huh. and just throw him around. Uh-huh. And then like some of the angles they would do with him, the way they would embarrass him. Like there's a lot of them where like Onita would scream in the back and say he's not worth <laughs> yeah. anything. Or just there's always like a lot of things. I remember putting together a three disc set on Hayabusa and it was just like looking at some of them it's like god he's just getting his ass beat and <laughs> people aren't taking care of him and knowing that like he's kind of the star of this promotion I know but at the same time too they're like just not taking care of the the golden goose <laughs> and they're humiliating him and embarrassing him any way possible ripping off his mask you know ripping his clothes doing all kinds of just wild shit to him and it just always felt like they never really respected him even though he was like extremely loyal to yeah. them and it just, I always felt like it was because, you know, they just still saw him as a young boy. He still has to pay his dues, so we'll just hit him with a fucking chair a bunch more yeah, times. Yeah, let, let's, <laughs> let's have Mike Awesome powerbomb him to the outside through a table that doesn't break. Let's fucking do shit like that, you know? Speaking on that, just watching all these matches and going back and just how much he got his fucking ass whooped. I mean, it makes sense with him being the face and just having him come back and shine, but it was just... I forgot how well he could take an ass whooping. And then it was those moments like, well, he's still taking an ass whooping. I have all these weird fucking moments where it's like growing up in my nerd wrestling days of watching stuff and having the three disc Hayabusa set and then coming to find out on the podcast that you you put that together. I did. Holy fuck. Another weird moment. All right. Going on. (laughs) While taking time off, Hayabusa returned to FMW on March 30th to rescue Jason the Terrible who was getting attacked by Mr. Pogo and the Headhunters, and this set up the main event for the company's 7th anniversary show on May 5th. At the 7th anniversary show, they would gently ease Hayabusa back in as he'd team up with Masada Tanaka (laughs) to take on Mr. Pogo and Terry Funk in a no-rope explosive Bob Wire, Time Bomb, Landmine, Double Hell, Deathmatch. This time, they'd have 15 minutes to get a pinfall before the entire place blows. And this ring was set up with barbed wire on two sides of it. The other two sides had no ropes that led to the floor where some bombs wrapped in barbed wire laid. Uh, I'm pretty sure this ring is not up to the New York State Athletic Commission standards. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yet again, uh, all the teases are good because you get enough people in a stadium like that and you tease explosives and fire 
A simple headlock and a couple steps towards possible death is enough for 30,000 people to go, oh, shit. <laughs> Poor Tanaka gets fucked up by everyone in this match. He was the first into the barbed wire explosion. I think Pogo cut him with an actual knife. What the fuck was that? He's got like a sickle. Yeah. That was Pogo's thing. He would just get a sickle and just grind it into, yeah. And then he sliced his arm open. It was like, that's the, when you're watching this stuff, after you get the tape. And you're like, oh, God, this is fucking murder. This isn't wrestling. They're just attacking each other with weapons. And Pogo was notorious for not taking care of guys. In oh, the ring. shit. Like, he was notorious for, like, pile driving guys and then opening his legs mm. so the eyes could, like... The head actually fucking slams yeah, into Yeah, like, he was kind of a, a piece of work. And the person <laughs> that told me that was Bill DeMont. So if Bill DeMont's <laughs> saying that you're a piece of shit... Yeah. Uh, the likelihood that you are a piece of shit. So like Ted Bundy's like, man, you got to watch out for this motherfucker. <laughs> I think my favorite spot in the whole match is when Terry Funk chokeslams Masato Tanaka outside to the barbed wire landmines, but he loses his balance too and falls to the <laughs> outside and gets blown up as well. <laughs> it's like, God damn it, I love you, Funk. Funk's team wins after he pins Hayabusa, but this is what it took to put Hayabusa down. A pile driver, another pile driver on a still chair, a face buster onto something that was on fire, Pogo and Funk spitting fire onto Hayabusa. Then they give him a double power bomb to end one of the most brutal matches I've ever seen in my life. I don't mean to be a nerd, but uh, the chair that Powell drove him on, that was also on fire <laughs> at the time. Yeah, that was 110 stitches. He beat Jesus. his previous, was it 67? Yeah. And But he didn't beat uh, Anita's record 111 Jeez. because that's probably fucking made up. After this, he took another three months off because of all the things we just said. He'd returned full-time in August. And on September 11th of 96, Azaki debuted his alter ego called Dark Side Hayabusa in a street fight against Hito at a wing show, which Azaki won and uh, pretty much just made his music a little spookier and added, Welcome to the Dark Side. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and this was only one of the only times that he would ever work heel in his entire career. He'd finish up 96 uh, working with people like the great Sasuke, Takamichinoku, the Funk Masters, and Freddy Cougar, second time Freddy Cougar's made it onto the podcast. And Leatherface is in there, and there's some there's some Hannibal Lecter ripoff coming around as well. In 97, Hayabusa began a long, bitter feud with Mr. Ganasuke. Ganasuke, who was Hayabusa's old friend and training partner, Masashi Honda. I feel like there should have been a movie with these two. They really missed out. Well, I mean, they didn't mess out. You could still write the story. <laughs> well, I mean, then to help promote the fucking... Uh, oh, no, they, they they did a little documentary piece right. that, to, to hype up some of their matches and one of their Those are really pieces. good, too. But, like, I feel like there should be, like, a Hollywood-level story or adaptation of this friendship that's had its ups and downs, like I said, you know, that started off with professional wrestling training together, getting jealous because one guy got to wrestle before the other one did, and then this other one gets this gimmick and gets aligned with Tarzan Goto and then leaves for a different promotion and then comes back and they start feuding with each other. And this guy's such a big celebrity, but this guy's like a hated heel. And then all of the stuff that they do and then the way their feud just lays out, like it just, it's an unbelievable story and it just... It makes perfect sense that they're together, and 
it's one of those moments where professional wrestling takes something from real life and then you put it in the ring and it's just incredible as you hoped it would be in it you think like oh well that just can happen any moment in time no something like that it's extremely rare and the feud that they have everything that we're going to probably talk about for the next several minutes is going to be just amazing and just coming from two friends and just their wonderful story together and their ups and downs and their turbulence and their careers and then their lives taking different turns it's just it's fascinating to me John Wu would have back then and still could totally crush this. He knows how to do the tight, close-knit brother relationship, and he's one of the most beautiful, gorgeous, orchestrating directors of violence in cinema. If he couldn't do this fucking story, I don't know who could. Michael Bay. Put some fucking respect on Michael Bay's name, Micah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're really inhabiting your Hollywood gimmick, like, way fucking hard. It's beautiful. I, I, give, you, uh, I give you props, so... Around this time, Hayabusa's the main event. Business is down, obviously. It's not his fault. It's because fucking Anita's gone. No matter how good Hayabusa is, no matter how much people love him, he didn't have the years and years built in of commitment from the fans. Then Anita finally decides, hey, I'm coming back. Hayabusa, he was in the hospital, I think, when this happened. He was in the hospital a lot. There was a lot of resentment from other wrestlers. Hayabusa, they felt the credibility of FMW was hurt. Because you do this retirement match with 58,000 fans, and then he comes back. You're lying to your loyal fans, but still through all this, Hayabusa, talk about the commitment and the loyalty. He never once thought about leaving, but Hayabusa's top tier pedestal was kind of taken away from yeah, him. Yeah, he even mentioned in his shoot that Onita coming back, a lot of the fans kind of felt like they got duped. And even now, Onita retired in 95. This is funk worthy. He wrestled on July 13th of this year in a sudden explosion, blast, electric current, bunkhouse, street fight, false count anywhere, bat death match. <laughs> and I don't know if that's baseball bat or winged, <laughs> but I hope it's really winged. So at FMW's eighth anniversary show, April 27th, 97, Hayabusa faced Mr. Ganasuke in a hair versus mask match. It's a uh, super good match, tons of fun spots. Uh, Hayabusa wins with his falcon arrow. But after the match, Hayabusa tried to make peace with Ganasuke. He said he wouldn't even cut his hair if he just shook his hand, but you never trust a pro wrestling handshake. Ganasuke attacked Hayabusa, took off his mask, and tried to set him on fire, which <laughs> is a dick move. Hayabusa was saved by Shinzaki, who you may know from his run in WWF as Hayakushi. As a result, Hayabusa formed a tag team with Hakushi and would spend the rest of 97 continuing to feud with Mr. Ganasuke and his various cronies. Also in 97, FMW and All Japan would form a working relationship, which would lead to Hayabusa making sporadic appearances in All Japan and him stepping in the same ring as Kenta Kobashi as well as Giant Baba. Did you watch the tag match I told you to watch, no. you jerk? Yeah, I know it. <laughs> Hayabusa, Jinsei Shinzaki versus Masawa and Akiyama. 11, 27, 97. Write it down. There's a fucking beautiful copy on YouTube. I was kind of shocked how good the quality is. They put in a goddamn match. It is so fucking good. There's great spots. I don't want to ruin them all. But in my notes at the end, I just have in bold. I couldn't even take notes after a while because I was marking the fuck out too much. It's so damn good. There's a Sega Saturn apron advertisement around the ring just to give that extra half a star that makes me love it so much. Just the energy. Everyone looks like five million fucking dollars. 
I can't recommend this match enough. And Meltzer actually gave it four and three quarters because, you know, one quarter, one quarter more and he's just, you know, too nice. At the end of December 1997, there would be a three-way War Games cage death match because you got to say cage and death match because it's FMW. But this would be the big moment where Hayabusa would climb the cage and actually hit the top rope moonsault off the fucking cage and pin Onita, which for back then, maybe it's not Hogan-worthy to pin Onita. I don't know. What do you think, Jake? Uh, It's still pretty big. I mean, Onita's kind of like a rock star. Like, I would say he loses luster every time he comes back. Yeah. Each time. But even up to, like, 99, 2000, he's still, like, leather jacket, jeans, Onita, (laughs) smoking a cigarette to the ring. Uh, still kind of a big deal. Still very much a rock star. I think he would still come out to like Wild Thing. Yep. I mean, it's still kind of there. But once you get into the 2000s, it's, the party's over for Onita. <laughs> In early 98, Hayabusa won a tournament to become the number one contender for his rival, Mr. Ganasuke's FNW Double Championship, which was the Unified Brass Knuckles Championship and the Independent Heavyweight Championship. On April 30th, Hayabusa faced Mr. Ganasuke for the double titles at FMW's first ever pay-per-view at their ninth anniversary show, Entertainment Wrestling Live, which is not a creative name. <laughs> the majority of this match is like, it's kind of a good old-fashioned wrestling match. Uh, Hayabusa even uses a figure four for a while, and I, I like that it showed that he can, you know, he can do the spot monkey stuff. He can go super hardcore, and he can even do the old-fashioned at the Strangler wrist lock. Yeah, I mean, he showed that in so many of his matches. He could do on the mat, on the feet, and then on the turnbuckle. He could do it all. Hayabusa would eventually win this with his Phoenix Splash to get a win over Mr. Ganasuke. This was also around the time in 98 when Koto Fuyuki, who became the booker, he started turning FMW into more of a WWF entertainment-style show. Lost some fans. The wrestlers were confused. The booking around here, from what I've read, because I didn't get to watch all the goddamn hours of FMW that are up on YouTube, which there are many, apparently the booking around this time really started to plummet. Hayabusa made his first title defense against his tag team partner, Masada Tanaka, May 19th, 98. And a lot of people say this is Hayabusa's very best match, but they throw everything at each other. Hayabusa tiger bombs Tanaka on top of his head and then Falcon arrows him to win and keep his belt. I got lucky enough to find the match. It's pretty damn good. There's great opening exchange. As weird as this is to say, there's one of the best figure four battles, reverses, back and forths I've seen in a while. It's pretty damn good. The, The one thing that I always, I will say one problem I have with watching some of these matches they just hit big power moves and sometimes they don't tease stuff enough or they don't maybe try hard enough or it's just move after move with close counts and sometimes it feels like they could maybe pace it out better i mean they're still fucking great but that's just me being a hardcore wrestling nerd so for those of you out there with the wwe network the only hayabusa match on there is from august 2nd 98 when hayabusa made an appearance for the ecw at their heatwave pay-per-view This match isn't perfect, but it is super fun to watch. And actually, Hayabusa and RVD have a miscommunication that got a you fucked up chant from the crowd. And in his shoot, Hayabusa said he loved that chant because it showed that the fans were smart. But for the love of God, don't tell the internet that. 
<laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because that was the moment where I was watching it and he brings it up and when he talks like oh you fucked up you fucked up and you, he, you can see it in his face he thought that was legitimately cool and he didn't take it to heart I mean I'm sure he wants to improve and it probably sucked but he was like you know what that was that was pretty fun that just showed me how good of a dude Hayabusa was in that little moment well and also too what some people forget a lot of times when you have these dream matches which consists of a guy from Japan or a guy from Mexico wrestling a guy from the UK or America. There's a language barrier. I mean, the language of professional wrestling is pretty transferable, but sometimes you know, you're dealing with a language barrier. You might even be dealing with the person flew in that morning and trying to grasp what's going on. You're already dealing with sensory overload of being in a different country and then trying to shake all that out. I mean, it's probably there's a reason why Hayabusa is in there with Sabu. So at least they have some sort of chemistry together. But someone like Rob Van Dam, who at the same time probably was token up before the actual match actually happened, um, probably. But you know that homes him in. That homes him in. Yeah, He's really good. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, that's what it does. Also watching it, I noticed that Hayabusa slaps the fuck out of Sabu <laughs> three times, and it's not just little piddly things. He slaps living shit out of him, and I just assume it's from their long friendship. So when, when you're in there with someone you're really close with, Jake, do you, I mean, you lay it in a little bit more just yep. to, yep. Yeah, that's exactly what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just gotta be like, Hey man, uh, go for it. Like I just wrestled a guy this past weekend and like some of his kicks were like not connecting whatsoever, which yeah. I appreciate it. Cause I wasn't looking to get hurt this past weekend <laughs> because I have this upcoming weekend off while we're recording here. You were a honky tonk man in it. A little bit. It was nice that he, he missed me, but then I'm like, Hey man, um, <laughs> You can go ahead and hit me because also too like some of those kicks were like during key moments where I needed sympathy and right. they were during key moments of like, hey, this is the cutoff and then you hit me with this and then you, I was making a little fiery comeback and then you cut that off and then of course I'd be start firing back up. I'd hit the ropes and you get this kick and it would miss and the people like, mm. oh, as opposed to, oh, right. where it's like, no, man, I'm an adult. <laughs> you can you can hit me. And I even told him, like, you uh, you could hit me, uh, but uh, I appreciate you not hitting me at the same time, too. So <laughs> hit in the safe areas as hard as possible. When you know someone like that, is it it's like receipts aren't a thing? It's just like, just lay it in no matter what. Yeah, you, you know, really... it's coming. It's like, I'm coming to receipt. Like, no. Like, speaking of receipts, I was wrestling C.W. Anderson in a war games match. Like, we were the two starting off, and it was just after I had a knee injury. And basically it was start where he throws a punch, I duck, and then I hit, hit him with a punch. Very simple spot. But because of my knee, like being a little awkward, my timing still a little off on punches. Also, too, I haven't been wrestling that much. I haven't had a lot of practice. So my working yeah. punches aren't as good as they should be. And I just connected. <laughs> he, yeah, he threw one, Bow. ducked, I brought him right there. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And he remembered it. Like, and he was supposed to do some other stuff, but he just dropped. <laughs> he just, he just like, dropped. Like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> Fast forward two or three years later, Ooh. we were in a match, and he was just supposed to come in and give me an elbow, and he got me under the chin, just perfect. Lights went out for like a second. Ooh. It was fine, but I didn't say shit about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he maliciously did it. But at the same time, too, he didn't give me too much of a too much grief after that one. So I wasn't going to give him too much grief after that one. <laughs> right, right. So it's one of those things like we may not be like apologize or so say sorry in the moment or we will apologize. And then something might get me later and it might not be malicious. But at the same time, too, I'm not going to say anything to him because like I had that one coming. Yep. Gotcha. So.
The ECW Heat Wave match ends with Hayabusa and Akushi both on tables taking leg drops from RVD and Sabu. And weird fun fact, this was not Hayabusa's first ECW match. We've all seen Beyond the Mat. We've all seen What's-His-Face with the weights jumping on the trampoline and Terry telling him to ref for me and Brett. Come on, I want you to ref for me and Brett. <laughs> Come on, I want you to main it re- referee the main event. That's all I'm going to ask. I want you there. I need you there. So, that fucking match, I think it was the co-main event or right before it, Hayabusa wrestled. You didn't see it, but there's probably footage in... It was Hayabusa, Hakushi, Masada Tanaka, who took on the Headhunters with Jake the Snake Roberts, <laughs> of all people, with Hayabusa's team. Yeah. I mean, it's just a hodgepodge when you're playing a video game and you just put a bunch of fucking people together because you like them all. You gotta get them all the goddamn show, okay? I gotta put this guy, I gotta put old, old Dennis Stamp on there some way, somehow. I'm just gonna fit it all together. I'm gonna put my brother Dory in there with Rob Van Dam and right. hope to God it works out well. November 20th, Hayabusa lost his double championship to the much larger Uyuki. Uh. By 99, Azaki had suffered multiple injuries, which led to him tweaking his wrestling style, getting a little bit away from it being such a high flyer and incorporating more mat wrestling. So they did this angle where the FMW commissioner would not allow Hayabusa to wear his falcon mask and compete as Hayabusa anymore. This led to Izake having a character change, and on August 27th, Izaki debuted his new character, H, with a complete makeover, blonde hair, a tattoo on his chest, and no mask. You, you didn't mention the Daisy Dukes. Oh, yeah, the Daisy Dukes. Not only would he debut those sweet-ass Daisy Dukes, he'd also debut the H-Edge, which is kind of like a cooler version of the rock bottom with a little bit of a swing to it. On September 3rd, Ganasuke would attack H during his match in a Hayabusa costume, which would lead to a feud between Hayabusa and Hayabusa. (laughs) Not just a match at SummerSlam where it's Undertaker (laughs) versus Undertaker, an entire fucking feud. That's the beauty thing about Mr. Ganasuke becoming Hayabusa. (laughs) He's like saying he'll devalue it. I think there was even like in, in the article that we're not for sure is canon or not fmwwrestling.us gotta give a lot of love to that dude yeah, he fucking goddamn he he mentioned that uh, Mr. Ganasuke made the comment that he would do a porno as Hayabusa <laughs> to disrespect Hayabusa just like I'm gonna shit all over your gimmick it's funny is this must have seeped into my consciousness <laughs> because the last time that I was in PWX with Zane Riley and we were feuding, I wanted him to earn the rights of the Man Scout character and then shit all over it <laughs> and dishonor it. And then like anytime I tried to do anything Man Scout related, he was like, Nope, that that's gimmick infringement. You that's you'll good. get you'll be sued for copyright and licensing agreement and I'd have to just wrestle in in black boots and black trunks and have to be a wrestler like a serious fucking wrestler jim Cornette was happy and then i would have to like win back the rights to be the man scout so very this this must have seeped into my consciousness when i was thinking of that feud because when i started doing the research for this i'm like oh well i guess uh this really (laughs) bright and original storyline that i had has already been done in fmw if there's any hardcore fans out there the Japanese porn star that fake Hayabusa was going to do it with was Choco Ball Makai. Well, speaking of porn, as part of this feud, 
H would take on Fake Hayabusa October 29th in a anus exploding match, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's really, it, when you read it on Wikipedia, you assume it's one of those things where the dude went in there and changed it and is like, you know what, I'm going to put this little nugget in there and they're not going to notice it because there's no such thing as a butthole explosion. <laughs> nope. But it's almost a callback to their young boy days when they had their some of the earlier matches. It was like a debut match back when Ganasuke was Honda and back before Hayabusa had the mask on. They were at some sort of retreat or some lodge, and they had people from the Tokyo sports magazines. And Onita thought it'd be a good way to get some publicity is like, hey, one of the things you do here when you debut is you get fireworks <laughs> shot out your ass. And there, and in that FMW USA article is like pictures of mm-hmm. like young Hayabusa yeah. holding his, his butt mm-hmm. from he had fireworks shooting off yeah. just for some publicity. And that was actually his first time in the magazine <laughs> was his getting fireworks shot out of his ass. So to, to bring it all back around just makes it that much more of a compelling story for Michael Bay to tell. And I mean, you really got to think, did Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O just get <laughs> totally fucking blitz one night and they were watching old tapes that their that uh, their buddy brought and they're like you know what we should do that Hayabusa and uh, Kanosuke never got the respect they did for the entire Jackass series yeah I, I watched this match I shut my computer and was like well that's enough wrestling for me today I mean it's kind of beautiful Kanosuke handcuffs him to the ring post he pulls down his trunks Hayabusa has a thong on he sticks a bottle rocket in his butt lights it runs off and it pops like crazy. And the best part is, is the announcer selling it like his butt <laughs> is going to actually explode. FMW also, these stipulations weren't rare. They had, if you lost a ladder match, you had to eat ah. dog food, normal. They had to, if you lost one match, you would get hit with a Boston cream <laughs> pie. And if you lost one match, you would have to listen to Nick talk about John uh, Mayer for three straight you. hours. Be good to your daughters. At uh, FMW's 10th anniversary show, H took on fake Hayabusa again in the main event. With Shawn Michaels as a special guest referee. Yes, that Shawn Michaels. <laughs> and I want to say H's entrance here, it's so fucking cool with him like floating up and then the feathers coming down. I, I, I liked it a lot. Even fake Hayabusa's is good because they do the silhouette and they play Hayabusa's yeah. original theme music. And you th- and if you're not really in on the angle, and then he comes out and he's all big and, you know, chubby. And you're like, oh, shit, he's stealing his gimmick. But the best part is they introduce both wrestlers. Shawn Michaels comes yeah. out third. He gets the main event fucking spot. He does sexy boy. He does the hip gyrations. The Japanese commentators are losing their mind. It's surreal as shit, and you should definitely check it out. Do you want to know why he's there? D- d- please, because I did all the fucking research in the world. Like, how did this come together? How did you not know all this coming together? Because in the opening match... Shawn Michaels brought over some of his students, Lance Cade and American Dragon. Oh. So Shawn, just trying to get some of his students some of his international experience, was giving them an opportunity to go to Japan and get some experience internationally and get their face on a Japanese pay-per-view. Also, too, uh, Sean was probably paid a shit oh, ton yeah. of fucking money. I really wanted the number, but we're never going to know that. Just Shawn Michaels, he gives a super kick to Ganasuke. He crotch chops over his fallen body. Just Shawn Michaels screaming out the count during a count out. 
I, I just laughed the whole match. It was weird. H eventually wins with a Phoenix Splash. And after he and Mr. Ganasuke reconcile, they shake hands, they end their rivalry, and actually they form a tag team. And they eventually have a run with the WEW tag team belts. Even though H more or less wrestled just like Hayabusa, the fans weren't super behind him for some reason. So with ticket sales dropping, Hayabusa would return and spend the bulk of the year 2000 feuding over the ownership of FMW. All this led to a match that took place on October 22nd, 2000, during which Hayabusa suffered a career-ending injury. Hayabusa went for a springboard moonsault off the middle rope, a spot that he had done a million times. Only this time, he lost his footing. He landed on his head, cracking two of his vertebrae, the exact same ones as Christopher Reeves, leaving him paralyzed. And Hayabusa said the moment he landed, he knew it was over. It's so brutal watch. I I got the full match. I'd always, because if you go on YouTube, you can't get the full match. You only get the 13-second clip. If you get the full match, while you're watching the 13 minutes leading up to it, it's brutal because those 10 seconds right before you're like, oh, fuck, this is it. But what's really messed up to watch is the aftermath because you don't see that in the YouTube clips. You see Hayabusa drop, bam. You know right then. The announcers, even the crowd knows it. They do this big pop when he hits because they don't really, oh, big move. And then they just it's just dead quiet it's pin drop quiet even the announcers don't know what to say after they kind of have their big moment the referee comes over to him and he starts talking to him you can see Hayabusa kind of move his arms and kind of move his head and he and then they're talking and there's just the the simple the simple moment when Hayabusa just shakes his head no he just shakes his head no is fucking brutal Mama Sasaki he was laying down he didn't see it that's what's so fucked up he doesn't see Hayabusa's head slam into it so he's still working the ref is still talking to him he's still trying to probably tell Sasaki but he's still working because you know it's the fucking main event of the show he throws the ref off of him kicks Hayabusa one time in the chest it's ah, god damn it and then Hayabusa's still on the ground obviously he's down all the way and Mama Sasaki gets on the floor basically laying down and puts him in a headlock and then the ref finally comes over and then you see that recognition in Mama Sasaki's. It's not his face because the quality's not the best, but just his body language is like, oh shit, this is, he's, he's fucked. And the bell rings and everyone floods. Socha Icho Arai, who was doing commentating, he screams out, Hayabusa! It's so fucking sad. Watching the actual footage, not just the little clip, really brings the tragedy and the humanity all together. And man, it's, it's fucking rough. And what's even creepier is, I think, like, just before this, there was a angle they were doing with some sort of Japanese demon where Hayabusa is, like, on the steps of, of some arena. It might, might have even been Cork and Hall, and he looks up, and there's this demon that says that he's cursed. <laughs> and this is, like, days, maybe weeks before all of this happens and they're just doing some sort of angle because it's fmw they're doing crazy angles where people are cursed now and for this <laughs> to happen it's pretty fucking eerie and i remember including that in the in the disc because it just it completes the whole story yeah. and i remember putting this together and then finally seeing the footage and it haunts me to this day and like Whenever I see Chris Jericho go for that lion song, I know. I just always like, please don't end up like Hayabusa. Mm -hmm. And anytime I see young guys do it, and like, there are a lot of young kids that are just like, 
yeah, sure, I'll go up and do a flip, and they don't even think. They don't think about how does my body need to move, where do, what's going to happen to my arms and my legs when I do this flip, where's my head going to be? And I think the smarter you are, the more you think about those things. It's just ignorance. They just don't have the experience. Because, right? I mean, I, there was a guy at a wrestling show that I just went to just did a 630, and he wasn't thinking about where his body and whatever. He did a 630 and just flicked. DDT'd him right uh, into the ground from the top rope. He's lucky to be alive, but he didn't even just like, yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, he was just going for it, but not even thinking like, where does my body need to be? How do I do this safely? How do I execute this? And, and thinking about all those little things. But yeah, that, that's something when I always talk about with like high flyer guys. And I'm like, man, I couldn't do what you do because every time I think about even doing that, I just think about Hayabusa. And that's like something that goes through everybody's head. But at the same time too, if you think about that, yep. You can end up just like him. Yep, that'll so, fuck you up more. Yep, and it wasn't the first time that he had these stingers. You'll there's a highlight of him trying a shooting stars press on Mike Awesome. He basically lands his chest first into Mike's chest, and his body folds over itself. Tanaka hit a half Nelson suplex on Hayabusa, and he felt nothing in his body for two seconds, but it came back. So when this spot happened, and he lost feeling, and it continued, he knew. And the thing that kills me about all this, watching the fucking footage, it's just, it's unbelievable. It feels almost scripted. They don't show, the camera chooses not to show Hayabusa anymore, which I, I get. But Hayabusa asks for the fucking mic while he's laying on the mat, crippled. And he says to the crowd, all of you, I'm truly sorry. It will take a long time to come back, but I want to come back. So please don't abandon FMW that I loved at the risk of my life. The fans scream back to him, we will wait for you. And the fact he still wanted to fucking say something after that shows all the loyalty, all the commitment, and just every ounce of his blood that he gave to that organization was in that moment. I, I couldn't believe he fucking did that. Hayabusa said he spent the next year and a half in the hospital. And not only was his pro wrestling career over in that moment, since he was the heart and soul of FMW, the company slowly folded and closed its doors. If we want to get really depressing, just because we're getting it all out there, FMW declares bankruptcy. The owner, Soichi Arai, commits suicide. Koto Fuyuki, the booker and monster heel, gets colon cancer. Thanks. This is all piled up with Hayabusa feeling that he fucked up. That he made the mistake, the company closed, which triggered the suicide the weight of all that shit on him in a hospital, not being able to move, staring at a ceiling of all the shit that I've like felt bad, depressed and disappeared in a fucking room for days. I, I, I don't understand how the fuck he got through that with all the lives and everything that he felt was on him. It wasn't on him, but you had to know in that moment of those emotions that are attacking you and you can't trust yourself. I, I, I don't see how he did it. No longer able to wrestle, Izaki pursued a career as a singer, and Micah actually found a video of him singing Stand By Me. After you listen to this podcast, type in Hayabusa sings, uh, sings English or Hayabusa English singing. I forget the YouTube exact wording, but he sings it in English, and it's the words, God damn. It also, watch all this stuff. You always hear him speak Japanese, and sometimes you don't even hear him talk at all. And the first thing I heard in English from this man was singing Stand By Me. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is too much for me. Hayabusa would also do some work with Dragon Gate. And he also promoted a new company called 
wrestling's marvelous future with WMF being FMW backwards. So one of the last things Hayabusa said in his shoot was that he had no regrets and that one day he'd walk again, put on the mask, and stand in the ring for the fans. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do. In 2015, Hayabusa actually regained some mobility in his legs and he was able to stand on his own and walk with a cane. You can find on YouTube Hayabusa in a mask walking into the ring getting there mostly under his own power with the use of a crutches to his theme song he he steps in the ring and it's straight up triumph of the human spirit uplifting stuff yeah if you want a good cry watch it and it, it just adds more because Hayabusa has just this amazing entrance yeah. song and it's playing in the it's background so as he's just climbing up the ring steps and people like Mil Maskris and Tiger Mask childhood are, heroes, are, childhood the heroes are in the ring helping him and assisting him getting in the ring it's just it, it's unbelievable quite a sight to see and I'm glad it exists on YouTube as awesome of a moment as that was less than a year later things would sadly take a turn for the worse when on March 3rd 2016 Ayaji Azaki died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 47. It's such a what the fuck thing that after everything he went through, of all the ways that wrestlers have died, it's it's nuts. Tons of wrestlers hopped on Twitter to pay their respects, including Pac, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, Kenny Omega, and Sami Zayn, all people who would probably be completely different wrestlers if not for Hayabusa's tremendous influence on the sport. So, final thoughts on Hayabusa. There's a really great thread that was online. Of, it was like kind of during the message board era and like pictures and online articles of one of these feel-good stories of Hayabusa. And I think it kind of like came out about the time that he did the shoot interview that we've referenced a couple of times. And he ended up going backstage at a WWE show. And it was like during the time that they had the ECW brand and Sabu was back there and like Hayabusa, who never worked for the company before, but was a wrestler who was crippled by professional wrestling and gave everything to professional wrestling, was welcome to go backstage and other wrestlers welcomed him, took pictures with him. Sabu, who he had this great feud with and these great matches with when Sabu saw him, he goes, what's up, superstar? You know, like that's... That's what you can hope for in professional wrestling, you know, like that type of respect of your peers. I mean, that's something that I've looked upon myself in my own career. Like, I'm obviously I'm never going to be WrestleMania main event. I'm not going to be uh, wrestling the Tokyo Dome no. or all, all of those things. But I always think back to this interview that, uh, you know, somebody said about boss Rutan was talking about like how like, he wanted to be remembered is <laughs> one, of those, one of those guys when you when you talk about this guy like oh you remember so-and-so yes he was you know he was the best he was so crazy he worked so hard he was a tough fight you know you know he might not have the best win-loss record but man every time that guy's name gets brought up it, it elicits, elicits a reaction and that's exactly what Hayabusa had was when you brought up his name, people were like, man, did you see some of the stuff that he did? <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, And for, for someone like Sabu, he'd be like, what's up, superstar? And I think there's even like a picture of like Vince McMahon and taking Shane, a, and Shane yeah. taking a picture with him. 
it's just such a shame that most people are going to forget or not even know that Hayabusa existed, but his impact is just felt throughout the wrestling world. Anybody that traded tapes, anybody that paid attention to that Super Juniors 94-95 renaissance that has now bubbled over into mainstream wrestling now is just, um, yeah, we're all, we're all indebted to Hayabusa just being a real pioneer for that. I had seen Hayabusa in passing lots of times, like various highlight reels or GIFs. And, but after doing like a deep dive and really digging into his career, I may have to shuffle around my top 10 all time because Hayabusa <laughs> is one of the most fun pro wrestlers I've, I've ever seen. Everything about him was cool. His theme music was awesome. His mask was awesome. Just his kicks were amazing. Uh, he had a million different suplexes he could pull out out of nowhere. He made 450s look like they were headlocks. Like it, He was truly amazing to watch. He could, he could do it all, too, everything in between. Uh, I enjoyed covering him. It's super sad that he's gone, but he is one of the greats. Hearing Nick say that he's in his top ten, or it might be in his top 10. Like, really, I'll say it fucks me up. Because in the stupid, nerdy world of wrestling, movies, comedy, when you find that weird little pocket of something really cool that no one knows about, and you spread it with someone, and they react the same way, and you feel the joy that you felt, and you feel like you're spreading it out, it really fucking touches you. And hearing Nick say that, did that, and the main reason we're talking about this episode, because my best friend, Mitchell Jones, he was the dude that I tape traded with in school. He was the guy that I would go during lunch in high school and give him an ECW slash Japan tape. He'd give me five bucks for the tape and then a little something extra. And we would talk about shit that I gave him days before. And it was building that tape trading relationship and that passion that got Mitch to be a huge Hayabusa mark. He would just talk about him all the time. He got that shitty Tokyo Pop DVD that came out. I mean, it's good matches, but the guys butcher everything. And it was just, it was those early days of sharing joy through this crazy shit that you had on a VHS. We kind of glossed over it. Hayabusa's days as not being able to walk, being in a wheelchair, and how many people would disappear. I probably would, just to fucking throw that out there. Hayabusa did so fucking much. He went to elementary schools. He talked to kids about not giving up, what he's went through. He sang to them. He has four CDs. He did one with Dragon Kid, who you might know from Dragon Gate. He visited college philosophy classes to speak on pro wrestling and how it applies to life. He would speak on behalf of disabled athletes and be an advocate for the Paralympics. In May 2005, he performed a play where he was in a wheelchair. Like Nick mentioned, Christopher Reeve doing the same thing. Oh, I, I, I can't walk. Well, fuck it. Put me in a role that's in a wheelchair and I can be a part of something and make some art. Chris Reeve did the same stuff in the Rear Window TV movie. Hayabusa even brought it up. It was so spot on. He's like, oh, I've read all of Christopher Reeve's books and I've learned all about him. So you can tell the inspiration spread through him and spread through other people. He would also go on telethons advocating for physically and mentally handicapped collection plates during the tsunami victims just singing in the street. It seems like he went the fuck out there and it didn't matter that he couldn't walk and that his life was changed forever. He made a better life because he got to see the world in a totally different way. 
I can't tell you how to look it up because it's all in Japanese characters and it just says ice. But there's a video of Hayabusa doing the ice bucket challenge. And the way he sells the ice in the cold... I mean, it's probably cold as shit, but he sells it like a pro wrestler, and he's just—I watched that video and I just laughed my fucking ass off because he's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's fucking beautiful. It warmed my heart to hear that he had a long-term girlfriend after his accident. Just learning that that he wasn't by himself. Nick spoke on his optimism, and I just don't think I'd have it in me. I don't see how he did it. It's the thing where you've lived a life so big, and so prosperous, and so unbelievable. And then you come crashing down and it's like, well, how do I live now? I've been exposed to this fucking world that is above everything that most people will ever know. And I won't come close to it. Not even 1% again. And he still found a way to spread positivity and love and his mushy cliche crap as that sounds. But he fucking did it because he felt it in his heart and it made people happy. I didn't expect to get so inspired by him getting into this research especially just being kind of a mark for him during my tape trading days because he had the best 450 splash ever i don't give a fuck too cold taught it to him but he perfected it um he could kick out of three counts like nobody's business the, the drama that he would do when he would lift it my favorite match real quick 60 minute iron man match with koto fuyuki it is incredible at the six minute mark they get power bomb through a table then there's 54 minutes it's it's so fucking good please search out his 60 minute iron man match and I'm just going to end on, we haven't touched on it, Hayabusa had a catchphrase, and you didn't fucking know it. I didn't know it, because all the promos I ever saw were in Japanese, like I said, with no subtitles. But every time at the end, he would just say, let's have some fun, and he embodied that all the way to his very death. So, let's have some fucking fun. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Ten Bell Pod on the great Hayabusa. If you like our podcast and you want to support us, leave us a rating and a review wherever you are listening. If you want to throw a little money our way, head over to patreon.com slash 10 pod. If all our listeners even gave $1, it would go a long way to keep Jake Manning in a full supply of tents. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube by typing in the words 10 pod or find all the things at 10bellpod.com. How are we ending this thing? Let's have some fun. All at once or right, one ready? at a time? One, two, three. Two, Let's three. have some fun. Let's have some, some fun. fun. That's bad.